You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. As all of you know, I'm on vacation the last couple of weeks. I am in Austria with my husband. Uh, doing Austrian things. And usually this is the part of the show, the top of the show, where I blow my stack, I rant a little bit about typically current events. Um, but, you know, I've been on vacation, so this is recorded in advance, and I can't rant about current events because I don't know what they are because uh, I am drunk in a beer garden somewhere right now. But uh, we do have a rant for you to start the show. We have a rant about rants. We have a caller with a question about my rants, and we have a guest on to rant in my stead. Here we go. Hey, Dan. Um, I am a 30-year-old married woman from California, and I have kind of an odd question, and I preface it with odd because it is not a sex and relationship question. It is a political one. Uh, One of my favorite parts of your show is the beginning where you kind of, you know, do a little recap of what's going on in the news and politically, and normally it's the part that I laugh my ass off because your commentary is so great. But I always find myself a little conflicted because while I am, a, I consider myself a liberal, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-gay rights, gay marriage, I am progressive. There are certain things that I don't like about the Democratic Party. The biggest part of that is my husband is a Marine. He's been in almost 20 years. And it seems every time a Democrat gets into office, um, our benefits start getting cut, our pay starts getting cut, we don't get raises, and, you know, maybe this isn't necessarily true, but it seems like since Obama has taken office, they have talked more and more about cutting the current pay that we receive. So not just not giving the guys raises, but actually cutting what they make now. Being a military wife, we are not in that 1% or whatever the phrase is, you know, we are not in the elite class making billions and billions of dollars. You know, we kind of are somewhere between the lower middle class and just the middle class. We are not making hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. I think most military families live paycheck to paycheck. But that being said, I can't stand some of the shit that they say most of the time. Um, I can't stand how stupid they can be. So I'm in this really odd political situation when people ask me, well, what do you identify with? Well, I don't really identify with anything. And that also makes it very difficult come voting time. I feel like no matter who I vote for, I kind of fuck one side of my personality. If I vote for the Republican, I am fucking the part of myself that believes, you know, that everyone should have basic human rights. But if I vote for the Democratic Party, I am fucking myself that needs, you know, my husband to make his income. So I'm just wondering, you know, is there a political party out there that kind of is both? Are there people out there like myself and my husband who are somewhere in between? Um, I hate politics specifically for this reason, because I've never really known who to identify with. 
Joining me by phone to handle this one, Patrick J. Murphy, America's first Iraq War veteran elected to Congress, host of the MSNBC show Taking the Hill, and the 1987 Altar Boy of the Year. That may be your proudest accomplishment, Patrick. Is that right? <laughs> if you ask my mom, Dan, who was who was a Catholic nun, and luckily for me, she left the convent. It is uh, my proudest accomplishment. And my two terms in Congress was not, but uh, I do what I can, buddy. <laughs> my dad was a Catholic deacon, and my mom was a Catholic lay minister, and they were delighted when I their altar boy seminarian son went to the seminary and not so delighted when uh, I left the seminary and they thought that was the worst thing leaving the seminary there was worse to come but mom and dad are over it now so uh, this woman pro-choice pro-gay marriage considers herself progressive married to a marine and her perception is that when Democrats and he's been a marine for 20 years her perception is that when Democrats are running the show benefits and pay for service members get cut you're a service member. You're a veteran. Is that true? That's not true. And listen, I want to thank Amber and her husband for their sacrifice for the country. But, you know, if you listen to Fox News, Dan, it's absolutely true. But the reality of it is, is that there's been no greater champion for veterans and military families than the Democrats. And the facts are very clear that when Barack Obama got in, he passed the largest increase in veterans' benefits in the nation's history. That budget went up from $90 billion a year to $155 billion a year. Now, I'm not saying everything's great because there's some, you know, what's going on in Phoenix and other things need to be fixed, but they've gotten pay increases each year. Now, listen, we are now downsizing the military because the war in Iraq is over. Well, it was over until recently because we're sending, you know, hundreds more troops back into Iraq, but, and we're winding down the war in Afghanistan. But, uh, no, there's been no greater champion than the Democrats in Congress and Barack Obama in the White House. So, uh, and so I would just say, you know, when you look at the top line numbers and everything else, that that isn't accurate. But if you listen to Fox News, then yeah, you can have that impression, even though it's not the truth. Now, how do the Republicans get away with this? Because we've got that sort of mommy party Democrats, daddy party Republicans. They're the party of defense. But when you look at the budgets, when you look at the history, uh, the Republicans will run a, will run wars on credit cards and then not want to fully fund services for the veterans uh, of foreign wars that they helped to create. It was the Republicans that blocked increased funding for the VA. And then they point a finger at the president and say, well, you were the guy in charge when we blocked funding for these needed services for veterans, so it's your fault. That's the game right. that they play. They played that game with Obama on the economy. We'll do everything we can to monkey wrench the economy and then point a finger at you. And they're doing it on veteran shit. How do they get away with it? Is really Fox News all that powerful? Well, in a sense, because listen, and I, this is, and again, I'm a proud Democrat. Uh, you know, I, I'm host of an MSNBC show, but my frustration is, is that Democrats are too nice sometimes, and we don't hold them accountable. We'll hold them accountable for a day, and then we move on to the next thing. And we got to focus like a bulldog on a bone on what the truth is. And the truth is this: is that you know, I mentioned the, the VA budget, but what about you know, we've had you know, my I'm named after a Vietnam veteran who was killed in Vietnam. My two uncles served in Vietnam. My dad served during Vietnam. And this is the reality. Tens of thousands of veterans from Vietnam who've gotten cancer because of Agent Orange are now covered because of Barack Obama and the Democratic Congress. You know, 1.1 million that served in Iraq and Afghanistan now have the post-9-11 GI Bill that either they could use, their wives or spouses could use, or their children could use because of Barack Obama and the Democrats in Congress. That's a reality. But not if you listen to Fox News. And Democrats got to be, you know, smarter than this and tougher, frankly, on this and hold them accountable. You look at the McCain-Sanders bill, which is being debated right now. It's emergency funding for the VA. Um, 
it, it passed the House and it passed the Senate. It's in conference. What's holding it up is the Republicans are like, hey, we need to pay for this. And listen, I, I believe in balanced budgets. I, I'm kind of one of those guys, Democrats, who really you know take these things seriously. But if you have emergency spending for wars, they should also include emergency spending to take care of our veterans when they come home. And of course, they, the Republicans they don't mind you know passing tax breaks that aren't paid for. You know, a Medicaid Part D plan that wasn't paid for. But if, God help us if we support these veterans and these veterans programs that we desperately need right now because there's 22 veterans committing suicide every day. God forbid that we try to make that emergency spending, which it should be. And the Republicans aren't willing to even have a conversation about maybe raising some taxes to pay for these benefits for veterans. They say we have to find other programs to cut to pay for these benefits for veterans. Is that correct? That- that's right. That's right. And I will say, though, Dan, you know, when you look at, you know, when listeners or callers like Amber call in, I tell her and, and po- folks like her and her husband, you should run for office. Veterans need to run for office. Because let me tell you, back in the 1970s, four out of five veterans ran, were in Congress. I'm sorry, four or five members in Congress were veterans. Now it's one in five. And you know why that's important, Dan? Because if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. And the veteran community has been on the menu right now because, thank God, we have President Obama in, in the White House, and we have a Democratic Senate. But these are the programs for veterans and military families that would be cut if it wasn't for them. Patrick Murphy, America's first Iraq War veteran elected to Congress, host of the MSNBC show Taking the Hill. Thanks for jumping on the phone. And I've never spoken to an altar boy of the year before, and I'm a little <laughs> starstruck, I have to say. Well, then next time you're in New York or Philly, you let me know and we'll get together. And uh, hopefully, hopefully I will see you soon. But thanks for all the great work that you do. I'm a huge fan. And, uh, and keep up the great work, brother. Thanks for all you do, too. I hope that was ranty enough for you. And now, your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old heterosexual male, and I'm here with my girlfriend, who is a... 24 heterosexual female. And we have this thing... We can't seem to find a way that's attractive to remove our pants or whatever we're wearing on the bottom. Like underwear is not a problem, but like whether it's shorts or pants, I guess a skirt or a dress really isn't an issue. Socks. Socks. Yes. Socks are the main one. Socks and pants. We can't seem to find a sexy way at that moment where you're like partway into the act or sort of into the act. You're, you know, you're getting, getting down and how do you make it hot? There's only one way to remove your pants sexy style. And we've all seen it in movies about male strippers. You grip the waist and yank and the pants just tear away because they're made out of Velcro. If you don't have the money to invest in Velcro pants, then you just have to fucking put up with that moment where you shuck the pants. And it's going to be a little awkward because sex is a little awkward. So you have that pause. You take your pants off. As for removing socks... Maybe you shouldn't. There are studies that have been done by the Dutch, and you can always depend on the Dutch with their sex studies, that show that, I'm quoting here, a woman's chance of having an orgasm increases by 30% if she's wearing socks. If her feet are warm, there is some sort of link between warm and cozy feet and a woman's ability to climax. So don't take your fucking socks off. Leave your fucking socks on and get her off instead. Good luck to you both. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm a 22-year-old girl living um, on the East Coast. I'm calling. I just graduated from college. Uh, My boyfriend and I, we've been together for three years, a little bit over three years. And I just started my first 
adult job, it seems. Um, I've been there. This is my third week. And a coworker and I, something happened. It was just, we were getting along, and then it was electric, and there was just tension all the time, and we were emailing back and forth, and we basically just admitted that if it weren't for the fact that he was married and um, has a nine-year-old child um, and the fact that he's 30 and I have a boyfriend of over three years that I love so much and we're moving in together and everything's great. I mean, things would be very different. And I I don't know how to get away from it and make my body stop reacting every time he comes near me and just how to sort of get away from the drama um, and really try and be a professional in the setting. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. There's no drama here. There's just a crush. This only crosses the line to drama if you fuck this guy, which you haven't done and you've both acknowledged uh, that you're not going to do, right? Because he is a nine-year-old and he's married and you have a boyfriend of three years and you're only 22, so that means you've been with this guy since you were a teenager, and maybe this crush is a sign that this guy isn't the right guy for you, and you're not going to be with him forever. Or maybe it means nothing, because as any listener to this show should know, being in a monogamous relationship doesn't mean you don't want to fuck other people. It means you refrain from fucking other people. That means, of course, that as you move through your life, you will encounter other people that you would very much like to fuck, and that if you were single, you might feel free to fuck. But you are not single. You are in a monogamous relationship. So you are not free to fuck this dude. But you really want to fuck this dude. That's going to happen. You're having a crush. That's kind of a physiological response. It's not necessarily something you chose. Obviously, it's complicating your life and giving you all sorts of bad fifis. So you wouldn't, as a rational person, choose to be in this position. So what do you do? You just kind of ride it out. It's good that you two have acknowledged The impossibility here. You have a crush on him. He has a crush on you. If you were both single, you would be fucking, but you're not both single, so you are not fucking. The missing piece here, and something that would be healthy if people could do with their partners, although people are insecure and people don't want to have a weird feeling every time you get dressed and go to work in the morning, it would be great if we could acknowledge these things with our partners. Oh my God, there's this person at work. I have a total crush on this person at work. They're so hot. Come here, fuck this shit out of me before I go to work so I can have a clear head at work today. If we could channel and, and all that desire, the the arousal that you are feeling at work for this other person, if you could come home and pour that on your long-term partner and he could benefit from that crush and know that he's benefiting from that crush, you're out in the world, you're having a little erotic vibe, you're getting cranked up and then you're bringing all that energy home to him, it would be wonderful if people were more secure. It would be wonderful if more people could appreciate how they benefit when their long-term partners are cranked up by other people, even if they're not fucking those other people, particularly if they're not fucking those other people. But so many people are really desperately insecure and would be worried about cheating or emotional infidelity, if not physical infidelity, that a lot of people just don't want to hear that. So what you do to take this non-problem, non-drama, run-of-the-mill crush that you are going to have many of over the course of your adult life to turn that into something positive for your relationship, you go to work, you let this guy crank you up, you go home, you take your wet pussy home and you slam it onto your boyfriend's face and his dick and you fuck the fucking shit out of him instead. Just as I hope this guy is fucking the fucking shit out of his wife instead of you. Because you should both honor the monogamous commitments that you've made to your respective partners. Hi, Dan. I live in uh, Chicago, and I'm a 30-year-old gay man, 
And I have a problem, and I really just don't know what to do about this. I just moved into my neighborhood, and, you know, maybe about five houses down, there's this man who's probably around 70, who sits out on his front porch all day and reads a book. And, you know, the first few days that I moved in, you know, one day he said, hey, what's your name? I haven't seen you before. And I said, oh, hi, I just moved in. And it was very pleasant. He would say hi every day. I'd say hello back. And then, very gradually, he started to say things like, hey, handsome, or hey, baby, or hey, good-looking. And sometimes he'll accompany it with a little smoochy lips face. You know, I'm sure at some point I'm going to start hearing, uh, hey, sexy, and... You know, it really feels like sexual harassment. And I feel so ridiculous since, you know, we're both men and we're both adults. And I, I really wish he would stop it. I probably wouldn't mind if he was, you know, somewhere near my age range or 40s or even 50s, because I feel like that's somewhere in the realm of my age. But, you know... I just really wish he would stop doing that. And I guess I really don't know what to say to him or what to do. Sometimes I'll even cross the street before I get to his house just so that I can fake not seeing him. And this is my own neighborhood. What should I say to him? How should I draw these lines without completely, you know, tearing into him in some horribly mean way. And, you know, if he was just some some dude and I was a woman, I would probably know how to handle this. But I understand that there's this way that gay men uh, should act around each other, this funny, splurty thing. What's the gay protocol here? I'm not sure there's a gay protocol here, a gay-specific protocol. Yes, it's true. In gay land, there tends to be a bit more sort of cheerful flirting because the power dynamics are less fraught because the, the power playing field is a little more even because there isn't this specter of, you know, gendered violence hanging over interactions between gay men as there is between interactions between men and women. There isn't the implicit threat of intimate partner violence, rape, everything else that women have to endure all day long. So that sort of playful catcalling can be a little different. Playful flirting, the shit gay men can say to each other, you know, so maybe there is a gay protocol here that's a little different. I've I've talked myself out of my initial point. What's the same, though, is here's someone who's making you really uncomfortable, and you're wringing your hands about saying something to him lest you make him uncomfortable. And you should just go ahead and make him fucking uncomfortable. You should just say to him, look, we're neighbors, and I, I like you, and uh, I want to be friendly, but the catcalling and the smoochy shit makes me just really uncomfortable, and I want... Uh, reset on our neighborly relationship and I want you to knock that shit off because it bothers me. And then if he's a decent human being, he'll knock it the fuck off. If he doesn't knock it the fuck off, then you can be as rude as you want to be to him for the rest of the time that you share a block with him. I suspect that what's going on here with this 70-year-old is that part of if he's a decent guy, what may be informing his behavior is this acknowledgement that he has no chance at you that he's just sort of playfully flirting with you in this sticky way 
because you would never be interested in him and he knows that, you know, and he may not really even be interested in you and he's just being a playful, dirty old man flirt because it's meaningless because really nothing's at stake because you guys aren't going to get together. He might not be doing this if he was a 30-something, 40-something or 50-something who actually had a chance of getting into your pants. But he may be thinking, oh, this is nothing. It's harmless. It's just I'm acknowledging that my cute, young, gay neighbor is cute, young, and gay by flirting with him in this really over-the-top, zero-mustel in a funny thing happened to me on the way to the forum kind of dirty old man way. And I mean it affectionately and like gay bros. That may be what he's thinking. He may not be aware that it's so unnerving it's bothering you so much. So tell him. And once you make it clear that it really does bother you, if he was doing it just to be friendly and fun and affectionate and gay, he'll stop. Because if that was what he was after, he wasn't trying to bother you. And he may be mortified that indeed he was bothering you. And he will probably apologize if he's a decent guy. If he's not a decent guy, if he's an indecent guy, and he doesn't knock it off and he doesn't apologize, well then fuck him. When he does kissy face shit to you when you walk by, turn around and yell at him. Turn around and tell him, I've asked you to stop. Say it in a loud voice so other neighbors can hear. I've asked you to stop. Please stop. Go ahead and be humorless. Go ahead and be a scold. Because a scolding is what all the indecent fucks out there who leverage people's inhibitions around making other people uncomfortable against them while they're making us uncomfortable. Throw it back in his face. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old straight male in a -a two-and-a-half-year-long relationship. The frequency of sex in our relationship has been a sore spot for the past 12 to 18 months with me needing more than we are having and her saying she wants more intimacy than I am giving her. So this is confusing, which I will get to. Uh, We managed to have a decent discussion on the topic of sex a few days ago, though this is very rare. Uh, Talking about our past sexual history has always been off the table with us. She doesn't want to know anything about my past because she says it has nothing to do with our now or our future. While I have always been open uh, about my past with previous girlfriends and enjoyed the discussions and openness, uh, this is a very difficult. Uh, it, it is very difficult, rather, uh, to talk about my opinions on sex, which are varied and quite well developed, uh, without referring to my past experiences. I feel that my girlfriend is blockading our ability to evolve as a sexual couple with her refusal to talk about her past. If we can't cover our sexual past, um, how am I going to bring up my desire to explore dominance play, bisexuality, and perhaps eventually opening the relationship in some ways? Uh, This lack of communication is seen in almost every other aspect of a relationship as well, with very few discussions on any meaningful topics. Um, The best idea I can come up with on how to deal with this is uh, to simply become the difficult party who initiates the conversations and pushes for more openness. I firmly believe that she would benefit from being a more open person, and that maybe it could help save our relationship at the end. Uh, I guess this is not exactly a question, uh, but what do you think, Dan? I have famously observed that gay people are better at sex, know more about sex, and have more sex than straight people. And that's not because we're magic, although we are that, but this is unrelated. It is because we communicate, because we have to. When a man and a woman go to bed together, uh, a lot is assumed. Um, Unless they are good communicators and they opt into communication, uh, male and female couple get to consent, they get to yes, and they stop talking. Because what's going to happen next is obvious. It's going to be penis and vag. When two dudes get to bed... They get to consent. They get to yes. That is the beginning of the conversation about what is going to happen. And you can't really even be an openly gay dude unless you are already communicating about who you are sexually with people you're not actually having sex with, communicating who you are sexually with your siblings, your friends, your parents. 
And that's a much more difficult conversation. Telling your mom you put dicks in your mouth is a much more difficult conversation than talking with your boyfriend about whatever it is you want to do with his dick besides put it in your mouth or in addition to putting it in your mouth. So gay people are better at sex. We have better sex because we communicate, because we must. So many straight people do, but not all straight people have to. So there are millions of straight people who don't. Some who claim, like your girlfriend, that they can't. So here's the deal. When you're with somebody who cannot communicate about sex and will not communicate about sex and there's nothing that you can do or you don't have the balls to force the issue, you either have to be really compatible out of the gate sexually with this person. It has to work and click. And so you don't have anything to talk about or you have to end it because it's never going to it's never going to happen. It's never going to work. If what you want is a very sexually satisfying relationship with good communication and exploration and adventures together, if that isn't already happening of its own communicationless accord in your opposite sex relationship and there's no communication that's ever going to happen, then you need to end it because it's not just going to explode all by itself because good sex doesn't happen in a communicationless vacuum. Good sex happens because two people are talking to each other. Sometimes that conversation can be nonverbal. Sometimes people communicate all sorts of things without using their mouths or while their mouths are full. But this isn't happening in your relationship. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to push all your chips into the middle of the table and force the conversation. She has said she doesn't want to hear about your past relationships or lovers. And you know what? Everything you say you want to talk about, you can talk about without mentioning all the past lovers that you did role play and buy and bondage and dom sub shit with. That's not how we pivot into those conversations. Otherwise, no one would ever do bondage or any of those other kinky things ever if we always had to rely on referring to past lovers with whom we did that shit to get it done with our new lovers. So just put all that on the table and say, sex is a priority for me in our sexual relationship. In this relationship, which has a sexual component, sex is important. That's why I, one major reason why I sought out a sexual partner, a romantic partner, an intimate partner was for the sex. And I want to prioritize that. I want that to be good. And satisfying for both of us. Because if it isn't, then this is not going to work. This relationship will wither and die. And I really like you and I don't want that to happen. So we have got to get to a place where we can talk about our desires. I will, in deference to your issues or insecurities around the fact that I have been with people in the past, leave them out of the convo. But let's talk about the future, our future together, and what we both want, what we want to explore, what we want to experience. Sometimes... It helps to talk about what you want to experience with someone that you're with now to be able to mention the things you've experienced with others in the past, but I can leave that out. But what I'm not going to do is be in a relationship where I can't communicate with the person that I have sex with about the sex that we are having, because that is a relationship that is doomed to fail. And if we are doomed, I'm going to get out now. That's the combo you should have with her. Good luck with it. Hi, Dan. I know this isn't uh, the type of call you would usually have, but I really would be interested in your input. I live in a um, rather big apartment complex uh, with a balcony. And, you know, summer now, we're trying to keep the the, um, cooling costs down, so we have the windows open a lot. And um, our downstairs neighbors um, now very often are uh, smoking pot on their balcony underneath us, and the smoke just comes wafting right into the windows. I'm straight edge. I don't do any drugs. I have a really bad physical reaction to smoke. Smoking pot is illegal in the state I live in, but I generally don't care what people do so long as it doesn't affect me. Like I don't really 
uh, want to bust pot smokers, I think it should be illegal. Um, so the problem is, uh, how do I deal with the situation? Because if I do go to the management about this problem, um, they could get the the neighbors could get in very big legal trouble because I feel like they'd be obligated uh, to report drug use. Um, but if I say it's just cigarettes, I mean they do have a right to smoke out on their balcony. Um, you know, I haven't spoken to them before, and I don't want to just be that neighbor that the first thing they hear from me is me knocking on the door to complain to them. Uh, so what is the way that you would handle a situation like this? I, I don't even know. Ask any cop if they would rather arrest a drunk or a pothead, and you will always hear pothead. Because drunks are aggressive and angry and can be violent and unreasonable because booze seems to interfere with the reasonable part of your brain. Potheads, on the other hand, ask any cop, tend to be mellow and agreeable even when they're getting arrested. I'm not suggesting that you get your neighbors arrested. I'm just suggesting that you go talk to them. They'll probably be rather mellow, polite people. Maybe you should talk to them when they're high. Go down there after you've smelled a little bit of that pot smoke wafting into your apartment. And all you have to ask them is to close the doors or maybe get high in their bathroom like College students have been doing since time immemorial, unless, of course, that is something they could get in trouble with, uh, with your landlord. Maybe your landlord has a rule that there's no smoking in the apartments, but you mentioned a balcony. Smoking on the balconies is okay. So they could be breaking the rule that they smoke inside. And if you live in the part of the country, if you live in a city where people get arrested in their own apartments when neighbors complain about pot smoke to the authorities, then you live in a place where it's unsafe for people to leave the building to go smoke pot in public. It's not like they can go outside and smoke pot on the street instead if you live somewhere where the police will kick down the door because someone's using marijuana in their own apartment. So there aren't a lot of options for them outside of their balcony, perhaps. And you may have to tolerate it. And I think pot smoke is more easily tolerated, even by the straight edge, than cigarette smoke. You say that they could smoke cigarettes on their balcony and you wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. Cigarette smoke, I think, is a lot more toxic. There's a lot more bullshit and chemicals in it. And also, it tends to be constant. People smoke a little pot when they want to get high, and then they're done smoking because they were after the high. People who smoke cigarettes smoke to smoke, and will smoke a lot of them. They'll smoke a pack a day. They'll smoke more than that, and they'll constantly be out there on the balcony satiating their addiction to nicotine, and the cigarette smoke will be constant. If I had a choice, as a non-smoker, a choice to live above a pothead or a cigarette smoker, I would absolutely positively choose the pothead. Because I would know that even if I was smelling a little bit of pot, that I wouldn't be smelling it for long. Cigarettes, on the other hand, you would be smelling all the fucking time. But, again, approach them. If you don't want your first interaction with them to be unfriendly, then have a couple of strategic interactions with them now that are friendly, that aren't about the pot smoke, and then bring up the pot smoke. Bring up the possibility of them investing in a vaporizer, which is actually healthier. You can express it to them as concern for the condition of their lungs and say that your pot-smoking friends, even if you don't have any straight-edge girl, just make a couple up that your pot-smoking friends have all switched to vaporizers because it creates less stink, less smell, and less risk for them. Fewer risks for their health. And then see what they do. Pot-smokers? Probably mellow, probably will adjust a little bit, probably will take a look up at your apartment next time to make sure your windows are closed. Maybe they'll pound on the ceiling for a quick second when they want to smoke pot to let you know to close your windows. Maybe that's an agreement you guys can come to. Give me a heads up when you're going to smoke some pot. I'll shut my windows for 10 minutes until the pot smoking's done and you're high and I'll open my windows back up. Maybe that can be your offer. 
that if they're willing to make a little change, you're willing to make a little change so you guys can live together in peace. Welcome to big cities. Welcome to shared spaces. Hi, I need your help. All right, I just started seeing this new guy. He is the best lover I have ever had. <laughs> the second time that we fooled around, he got me like 90% of the way there. He can consistently get me like 80 to 90% of the way there just from touching me, which is amazing. Nobody has ever done that. Like, you know, he cares about getting me off. That's a priority to him. That's almost better than coming himself. These are all great things. Um, but ironically, he doesn't feel like he's a very good lover at all, and it's starting to become a problem. I tried explaining to him that he's the best person that I've ever been with. I tried giving him, you know, explaining what, like, the other people that I've been with have been like, where they don't care if I get off or they don't know how to touch me or, you know, just, like, <laughs> rub, you know, really hard or the wrong way or, you know, can get me, like, 10% of the way there on the regular, and he gets me, like, 90% of the way there, and he did make me come once. But for him, if he can't make me come... He gets depressed and, like, right that moment, like, kills the mood. And this has been going on for a week or so now. And I don't know what to do to get inside his head and make him understand, you know, like, he doesn't feel like what he's doing is anything special. And so he doesn't realize how amazing he is. And basically the effect that this is having is that now, you know, I feel pressure to perform and, I'm not the kind of person who's going to fake it, but, you know, obviously I don't like him being upset and, you know, he isn't just having fun, like touching me and getting turned on. He's like worried about whether he's going to make me come. And, you know, it's just not like lighthearted and awesome the way that it was. And I don't really know what to do about that. I'm afraid that this is going to kill the amazing sex that we've been having. I don't know. I suggested that he try thinking about the orgasm as the end goal and know that he's responsible for me getting there, whether he gets me across the finish line or whether I do. You know, he says that he he knows he needs to change his attitude but doesn't know how to do it, and I don't know how to get through to him. And I don't know. I thought about maybe making manual stimulation off limits until he can come around to, like, try to take pressure off and because it's no fun this way. But I don't know whether that will help, and I just would appreciate your advice because he's a really great guy and he's really sweet and I love that he just wants to make me come over and over and over, but I need him to be having fun, you know? If he gets you 80, 90% of the way there, I'm going to assume that you're getting yourself the rest of the way there, that there's a point at which you take over and you finish yourself off. You round that 90% effort up to 100% orgasm and that that's what he has a problem with. If you're not doing that, please start doing that. Please start grounding that 90% effort up to 100% solid gold orgasm in his presence. And if he has a problem with that, uh, here's what you say to him. And if this doesn't register, if this doesn't sink in, then you break the fuck up with this insecure douchebag that you only have a week invested in. Straight guys who have this hang-up need to get it through their fucking thick heads that – what are they doing? Really? Come on, guys. What are you doing when you come? There's a certain point at which even if she's giving you the blowjob where you kind of take over, where your hips start going, where your dick starts going, and you are getting yourself the rest of the way there while you fuck her, while you get that blowjob. There's really this aspect of you're using her. You're – not in a bad way, totally consensual, but you're taking pleasure from her body. You're shifting the angle, the penetration speed, the depth, everything. You are, in the end, whatever she's done for you, in most cases, getting yourself the rest of the way there, getting yourself off. So there's nothing wrong 
if what's happening for you is she gets you 80, 90% of the way there, and then there's a certain point where you just go automaton on her and shift into orgasmic inevitability autopilot, and you get yourself the rest of the way there with her together, nothing wrong with her doing the same thing. Using your dick, using your tongue, using your fingers, you get her so aroused almost all the way there, and in the last few minutes, she, with her own fingers, or the vibrator, or with a particular grind that she enjoys most, takes control and gets herself the rest of the way there. She shifts into orgasmic inevitability autopilot just as you do. This isn't a referendum on your skills. That she's not laying there completely prostrate the entire time, motionless, but for your efforts. That's not how you get off. You don't lay there perfectly still while she does all the work on the head of your dick until you come. Unless you're into a particularly intense kind of sensory deprivation bondage where you can't move at all. Which 99.99% of you are not. You're active and engaged. You are maneuvering your own dick around. In and out of her. She can maneuver her own clit around. In and out and around you. And get herself the rest of the way there. Just like you get yourself the rest of the way there. Really, guys. Come on. Really. There is that moment. I am a dude with a dick too. There is that moment where you just start. Where you take over whatever else is being done. Even if that person was sitting on your dick, backing up on you. There's a point at which you take control and you're getting it into a certain angle, a certain speed. You're hitting a certain spot on your dick in a certain way that works you every time. And you may not have your hand on your dick, but really you have a cosmic hand on your dick at that moment. So if she needs a hand on her clit, her own hand on her clit at that moment to get herself the rest of the way there, it does not mean you suck at this sex thing. Any more than it means that she sucks at this sex thing when you get to that point where you kind of take over, where your reptile brain kind of takes over and you get yourself the rest of the way there. Caller, I hope that helps. Just make your stupid fucking insecure bullshit boyfriend listen to that. Maybe that will work. I've never said it quite that way before. Maybe it'll help him. Maybe it'll help some other people who are listening right now. And guys, nothing makes it harder for someone to come than being under pressure to come. Nothing makes an orgasm more elusive than the creeping feeling that you're disappointing your partner by not climaxing on cue, by not climaxing the way they would like you to climax. So if you want to make sure she can never come with you, and if you want to sabotage this relationship, make her orgasm all about you. And it's over. She will never have another one with you, ever. So, boyfriend, if you're listening, you're doing it wrong. If you get her 90% of the way there and she gets herself 10% at the end, you did it right. If you're pouting and being a bullshit, fucking pain in the ass, sad sack Eeyore immediately after she got herself the rest of the way there, you are doing it wrong. And she will get sick of that shit and go find somebody who can do it right. Right meaning helping and getting her almost all the way there. Not right meaning they can do it all by themselves while she lays there completely still. There are tons of smart people out there doing really interesting research on human sexuality, sociologists, biologists, psychologists, and social scientists. And when we hear about an interesting study, we invite the author to come on the show to tell us what they got.
This week, Elizabeth Armstrong, Associate Professor of Sociology and Organizational Studies at the University of Michigan, is here to tell us what she's got. So, Professor Armstrong, thank you for jumping on the phone. What you got? Great. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Um, My co-authors and I recently published a study on slut-shaming. We looked at how young women um, use the term slut as they interact with each other on college campuses. Often, people think that basically calling girls sluts is something that maybe it's it's what the boys are doing, that it's all about what men are calling women. And certainly that's true. We know that, that men and boys use that language, but we focused on how young women use that language. We, we've talked about that on the show before, and I've made that point mm-hmm. before, that sometimes when mm-hmm. you, you speak to girls, particularly young women, the, the, mm-hmm. the worst and most seemingly psychologically damaging slut-shaming comes from other girls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we found, we found that, um, that it actually, in, at least in this college campus that we studied, happened between girls of, like, of different social classes, that, that the kind of wealthy young women who participated in sororities and kind of were the kind of high-status girls on campus, the way they used the term was different than how the kind of girls who were sort of excluded from that world used the term the sort of low status or kind of unpopular girls on campus. That the, the wealthy girls were kind of making a distinction between being classy and trashy. Uh-huh. which very conveniently made it very difficult to, for them to get labeled as slutty because they had the money to kind of put together a really classy appearance. Um, whereas the poor girls, they make, they kind of made a distinction between being kind of um, nice, down-to-earth, kind of accepting, kind of just nice people and being kind of clicky, kind of clicky, bitchy, exclusive, and just, and just generally kind of not nice. So they were, they were in some ways using, without really knowing, one of the things that both groups had in common is nobody knew really very much about what other people were actually doing in bed, that the term was thrown about to kind of accomplish, um, kind of, you know, basically create these different groups and sort of keep people in their place without really having any, any significant real tight association with what, what people were doing sexually. How, how did you conduct this study? How did you get in the heads of all of these girls on this one campus? Yeah. So we we had a room on a residence hall floor at a big um, state university, and we were there the whole year. Particularly my my co-author Laura Hamilton, who is much younger than I am, she was really able to kind of insinuate herself into the friendship groups of of these women and kind of sit on the, sit on the floor of the dorm and kind of just you know, watch, um, they, at that time they were watching the show OC, which is now like old news, but they would, <laughs> they, they would watch TV and, and talk. And so, and, so you got, you guys, um, you embedded yourselves in this campus. Yeah, this we were right there. And then we followed them for five years. So we, we talked with them that first year and then all the way through after most of them graduated, but they used the term slut and were really in, interested in these, in kind of gender hierarchies, hierarchies, like who was the most popular, who was going to get into the sorority, who wasn't that like the freshman and sophomore year. And then as they kind of started like aging out of that um, kind of stage of life, they, they were, they tended to get a little bit, you know, more, 
less interested in, in him kind of using these kind of terms and kind of a little bit so it sounds less less it, judgmental. It sounds like what you documented was a kind of bullying that here in our classless society we are really reluctant to acknowledge or address, which is class based bullying that the the rich girls yeah. were using slut as a label to put the poor girls in their place, and the poorer mm-hmm. girls or the the middle class or working class girls were using slut sort of to get back at the rich girls. Yeah. And it just really sounds like it reinforced this divide that was all about money and class and power. So once again, we're back at the 1%, the 99% shit that just permeates our culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's really interesting the way bullying about that appears to be about sexuality or gender um, sometimes can have these kind of other dimensions to it thrown in. Like uh, we, the women we studied were all white, but scholars that have done research with women of color have have noted that that this the same thing kind of happens in terms of race. That women of color tend to be much more vulnerable to being kind of slut shamed and kind of bullied on the basis of sort of sexual activity that they you often aren't even having. Did you find slut shaming was when it was uh, perpetrated by the the rich girls on the the working class or poorer girls? Was it more damaging than this than the slut shaming that went in the other direction? Yeah, it it was because what happened was that that the um, rich girls made were able to make their definition stick in a kind of really public way. And the poor girls just basically like muttered things amongst themselves that the wealthy women never even heard, or if they heard, they really didn't care. Um, in the the high status women on the floor, like really kind of literally looked through the um, low status women. I mean, they really they didn't know their names. They barely even cared that they even existed. Um, there was a lot of kind of drama on the floor about issues of things like did did someone like basically just like slam the door in someone's face because basically they would so much, the, the the high status girls would so much not see the um, low status girls that they would basically kind of like just like shut the door on them. I mean, so so actually a lot of the bullying that happened. I don't even know if one would. Come Call it, call it bullying. It was more level, more like low level, like disrespect. Um, happened in the, these kind of forms of kind of the, the snubbing, who was basically whose existence was acknowledged, who was who was ignored. Um, but then that could bleed over or kind of into into other forms, more more dramatic forms of of disregard. The one detail from your study that that that, I, that did cross my desk before we got on the phone that I just thought was so depressing because it kind of just runs against our ideas about colleges, about bringing people together of different, you know, having uh, student loans or scholarships to bring people together of different classes and races and ethnicities and backgrounds. And there, for there to be then some intermingling that increases people's understandings. But you found that not one of the women that you followed over this five-year period had made a friend across this income divide, not one. Well, yeah, that may be slightly an exaggeration, but they, I mean, I think there might have been some cross class mixing, mixing, but not, not much. Like, certainly in terms of the, the, the um, freshman dorm floor, the women who were granted um, a roommate who was from a really different class location, those roommate relations didn't even survive the year for the most part. In most cases, the affluent women, like, transferred to another room or switched roommates or somehow got away from the um, lower income woman or the, or in some cases the lower income woman like left the university before the end of the year. But um, 
Yeah. So there was it, the the one of the I think main functions or intended or not of Greek systems on these big college campuses is cultivating a fairly serious kind of class divide on campus because basically you have to have a, a fair amount of money to even consider even trying to mm-hmm. get in or um, and so. Uh, these organizations tend to be really, really demanding of time and energy. So someone, someone gets in a sorority, basically all of her friends are going to be other women in sororities, which are by definition going to be all pretty affluent people. So that kind of just by definition is going to create a pretty serious kind of class divide in, in terms of who's friends with whom in the student body. The other detail from the study that leapt out at me that I thought was, that made me laugh out loud uh, when the Tech Soviet Rescue shared it with me was that the rich girls thought casual sex was only quote-unquote problematic, only landed you in the slut category if it included vaginal intercourse. If you were just blowing dudes, there's nothing slutty about that. You could blow <laughs> every dude fine. on campus and you're not yeah, a slut, <laughs> but you let somebody into your magic vajayjay and oh my God, girl, you're a slut. <laughs> Yeah, no, they, 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 they had like, they had fairly convenient, um, kind of ways of defining things, but of course you had, you had to look classy too. You had to, you know, if you're going to give the blowjob, you had to, you still had the classy appearance too. But I think, I think the, another, another thing that they did, they would often do a kind of language or a, a kind of discussion like, well, I know this girl who, and then they would talk about some friend of a friend of a friend who had sex with the entire football team, and now she's a slut, which in fact gave them a lot of permission because if they had sex with only half of the football team, maybe, <laughs> you know, they were like not a slut. They were, so de- words, they were demonstrating so much self-restraint when they only fucked half the football team. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, we, we talked about this, this, this person as the mythical slut who basically gave permission for people to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. Oh my God, because the, the mythical slut just screws up the curve in such a convenient way for everyone. If there yeah. is some insane slut on your campus, then whatever you do couldn't possibly compare to... Yeah, it can't, can't be, you know, can't be that can't be that bad because she's you know there is this so there so there is often in the interviews people would would come up would kind of come up with one of these stories you know let me tell you about the girl who um yeah and so so and that's another thing that we really found is that nobody really when it came to actual sexual behavior there was absolutely no consensus about what was okay and what was not okay i mean the, the the affluent women did have did tend to kind of draw the line a little bit more about kind of vaginal intercourse and and keeping that in relationships. But, you know, still, even for them, it's like if you slipped up a few times under particular circumstances, that was still kind of okay. And, you know, but when it really came down to kind of actually like trying to pin down what sexual behaviors or kind of Oh, what even you know ways of presenting was were really okay. They, they they it just it just slipped all over the place. That's where we ended up kind of having this the sense of that there was just really no there there. <laughs> there's it's a it's a it's a it's a derogatory term, but there's nothing nobody to attach it to. Uh, two um, two quick final questions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just this is just one more piece of evidence that class is so toxic in our society and mm-hmm. the the. Mm-hmm. the Money and privilege and the one percent shit and just the when you know we, the the rich girls looking through the poor girls the rich girls enforcing this code of the slut and getting away with mm-hmm. it 
um, to keep the poor girls in their place. How long until the guillotines are rolled out into public squares in this country? <laughs> How much longer can this shit go on before the much more numerous working class poor rise up in anger and fury and the shit hits the fucking fan. I don't know how much longer were people going to put up with this in every venue of our lives where the rich people just shit on the poor people, shit on the poor people, shit on the poor people from the boardroom to dorm rooms to every other place in our, in our culture and our society. How long can this go on? Yeah, well, that's 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 a perennial question that sociologists actually have been mulling about for years and years and years in terms of, you know, kind of going back to thinking about sort of Marxism and the notion of hegemony. The, that notion is basically like, how is it that people end up um, believing, you know, being bought in even when it's so much not to um, their advantage. Like I have a graduate student now who's inter- who's talking to people who feel like very economically insecure, yet they still believe that the American dream exists and everything is very fair, even though in their own lives they're struggling and struggling to get by. But um, so t- so trying to explain the kind of you know that sort of disconnect between <laughs> between. Speaking of people who are bought into you know a system that isn't advantageous to them, speaking of that kind of false consciousness. Okay, so in the wake of Hobby Lobby, in the wake of, you know, there's a sudden effort on the right to slap the birth control pills out of the mouths of American sluts. Really, there's been so much slut shaming in the wake of Hobby Lobby from Mm -hmm. the right. Uh, How depressing is it that you have, you you document in this study that that women buy into this system of slut shaming Mm -hmm. and what is it going to take for women to, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the culture, men, the Supreme court regulating, controlling and stigmatizing women's sexual choices. What is it going to take for women to stop stigmatizing other women's sexual choices? Yeah. Well, I hope articles like this can help in that, that if, if people kind of have a better understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it, um, I really hope that this article is like taught in kind of undergraduate classes around the country and that instructors that are, you know, skilled at kind of really pushing students to think and think critically can help um, young people kind of just basically go, no, we're just not going to do this, that we're just going to do to, to pretty much, um, you know, take this kind of language and, you know, and either engage in a really playful, aggressive kind of stigma conversion, like claiming, you know, claiming a slut label could be one way of approaching it, um, but or, or just being very careful about the context in which the language is used and sort of what one's trying, what one's doing with it, but really... Um, um, you know, teaching in, in the classroom is, I think, one one place where um, where at least some change can happen. Okay, what's the title of the study and where can people who want to read the whole thing find it? Um, the title is Good Girls um, and Gender and Social Class and Slut Discourse on Campus. And it is in the Social Psychology Quarterly. Um, and and yeah, one last question probably. before one last question before I let you go. Uh, so when you guys were doing this research, when you were embedded in this dorm, when you were watching all of this go down, was there ever a moment you just wanted to haul off and slap somebody? <laughs> well, I, there, there, there were some of them. We, some of the women we found a little more difficult. Yes. I mean, there, um, and, and, we tried and, to be really, you tried to be really fair. You tried to be really fly on the wall. That's what sociologists do. Right. Yeah. Um, but there has to have been a moment where you wanted to slut shame, shame, where you wanted to. <laughs> Slap somebody yeah, who's engaged was, in this yeah, kind of toxic was, slut shaming. 
it, yeah, it raised all kinds of feelings for us in terms of, um, you know, our own positions, like how, you know, where, like I, um, I found myself going to the mall on the way to the field site, trying to find a cute top so that, that I would be like, Oh, oh my God, that's heartbreaking. Know, like, I know it was a disaster. I mean, there was no way I was at the bottom of the barrel in terms of the sort of gender hierarchy in that situation. But it was, it was, it was intense to have those kind of junior high, high school feelings kind of reactivated. And, and our field notes is, you know, where we, where we kind of expressed our emotions in terms of like when when some of the women were really kind of engaging in the uh, snubbing of us and were really not nice, we would like write it all out in the field. And I was like, I can't believe you just did that. Ah. You know, so we would see our own feelings kind of emerge through through that. And we tried to... We tried to, and how we wrote about them, ultimately, you know, try to understand things from, like, the point of view of all of the different women and kind of try to be fair. But, yeah, it, it, it got to us, too. Crazy. Thank you so much for joining us. Elizabeth Armstrong, Associate Professor of Sociology and Organizational Studies at the University of Michigan. The article, once again, is called Good Girls, Gender, Social Class, and Slut Discourse on Campus, and you can find it in the Social Psychology Quarterly. Thanks again, Elizabeth. It was really great chatting with you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Hi, Dan and the Tech Soviet Rescues. I'm calling with a pretty embarrassing question. My boyfriend and I were having sex the other night in my room. I currently live with my mother. And uh, she walked in on us while I was in the top half of my new lingerie and fishnets. And I don't know if she actually saw anything but I do know that my door was opened and closed. I don't know if I'm, if I should say anything to her and acknowledge that maybe she saw something or if I should just pretend like nothing happened. I'm erring on the side of pretending like nothing happened, but I'm really embarrassed and I would like to know what you think. You think you have an awesome mom. That's what you think. You think your mom walked in, realized that she had <laughs> forgotten to knock, that the fault was hers, and she backed the fuck out and closed the door and didn't bring it up, didn't throw it in your face, didn't mention it. Your mother has some respect for your privacy, probably more respect now because she will think to knock before she walks into your room. I'm assuming here you're an adult who lives at home with your parents because you sound like an adult. And she learned her lesson. Burst into the room of your adult child in your home, your adult child who is partnered, and you might see something that a mother probably doesn't need to see or want to see. Whether you want to talk with your mother about this, whether you want to lance the boil of the tension that you feel, Mom, did you walk into my room? She may turn beet red, blush, embarrass, and apologize. Or you can just take Mom's behavior here as your answer. She saw, she's embarrassed, she knows she was in the wrong, she's not scolding you or blowing up at you or slut shaming you or negligee shaming you or anything. She's retroactively attempting to respect your privacy, which she failed to do in that moment that she didn't knock by not bringing it up and recognizing that you have a right to be sexual in your own room with the door closed with your partner and that she screwed up by not knocking. So your choice, take what's on offer, which is let's pretend that didn't happen, which I think is a pretty good offer actually from mom or go talk to her about it and have a mortifying moment and then laugh it the fuck off, which is what you do with those mortifying moments between parent and child when everybody is a sexually autonomous adult. Hi, uh, I'm a 36-year-old straight woman living in the largest city on the East Coast. I've been in my relationship for three and a half years. 
We've been exclusive for most of that and living together three years. Six weeks ago, we had our first child. We get along wonderfully. Our sex life, uh, I guess until the baby, has been outstanding. It's frequent, it's fun, it's very satisfying. He's honestly one of the sexiest men I've ever met. Totally good there. About nine months into our relationship, I found out that he was conversing with other women online. He was flirting with them, talking about future dates when they were going to get together, exchanging naked pictures of himself and, and they their naked pictures, things like this. I was completely floored. I thought we were totally happy and this came out of nowhere. Uh, when I confronted him, he said that that side of him had nothing to do with me. It was nothing physical, never fucked any of the other, these other women, and he just ex- used those exchanges to get off. They were exciting and tantalizing and fun. So I, being a longtime Savage Love listener, told him that he could continue these flirtations online with two rules. Don't fuck other women. I was clear that I wanted a monogamous sexual relationship and don't lie to me. He agreed. And we continued our great relationship. It's been outstanding. I got pregnant and we had our son six weeks ago. Four weeks ago, a friend told me my boyfriend was back on Tinder and had been a while. Probably my whole pregnancy. Um, When I confronted him about it, he lied to me at first, saying he wasn't on any dating sites, but then came clean and admitted that he wants an open relationship and that he's always wanted an open relationship. He says it has nothing to do with me, but he loves me. He loves what we have. He loves our family. He loves living with me. I mean, we really do have a great relationship. And he is crazy about our son. I mean, the timing couldn't have been worse. And I guess I just really don't know what to do. I'm not comfortable opening our relationship up, especially now. I feel really vulnerable and not sexy and uh, a little insecure. But I am willing to discuss it with him and be honest, uh, you know, and see if we can work towards a compromise or work towards something. But he doesn't seem willing to do that at all. He doesn't see this as a big deal. He doesn't kind of connect sex and emotions together. And he doesn't really understand why I can't just grant him this request since he's given me all of these other things, like this stability and security in this family. He you know, really wants this, has always wanted this, and doesn't see why I can't compromise. I don't know. I feel a little bullied. I definitely don't want to break up. I don't want to break up our family. It's brand new. But I also really don't feel comfortable with him fucking other women. So I don't know what to do. And uh, I guess that's it. You sounded a little not good at the end of your question. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not been the easiest time to deal with something like this. It's not an easy time to deal with being blindsided with an ultimatum like that? <laughs> right. When, I mean, it's it's tough. I, I don't uh, know that you would understand, but like right after you give birth, you're very hormonal and you just do not feel sexy or confident. You feel mm. very vulnerable you like basically everything sexual is kind of taken from you temporarily. But um, so that had this implication as well. And so it just was even tougher to deal with. Have there been any developments since you called? Um, not 
not particularly. Like, I've gone through different phases with it. I've gone through wanting to talk about it exhaustively to not wanting to talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. I've gone through, like, circling it around in my head, trying to, like, find the solution and work the problem, writing pros and cons, reaching out to friends. Um, so right now I'm kind of at a point where I just, you know, I have to, I, I asked for some time. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't thinking clearly. And so I have, you know, technically until August, to even have a discussion again. And I just felt like I just need to not think about it for a while and think about being a mom and thinking about, you you know, just getting stuff back. You have till August to decide whether or not you're giving the Crimea back to Mr. Putin. Um, Listen, (laughs) you say, you know, in the call you said you aren't willing to have an open relationship. And then you said, I am willing to discuss it with him. And Mm -hmm. this isn't, a, a compromise dispute. There's no like middle ground between open and closed relationship. And, you know, w- when you say not willing to have it, but willing to discuss, like you can explain to him why you don't want to have an open relationship until your face falls off. And if he is willing to leave you to be, you know, to be in an open relationship with someone else, or, you know, if he's not willing to agree to be monogamous, to stay with you, like something's got to give here. There's no, there's no like, let's cut the baby in half. Literally. There's no half a loaf. And my gut reaction and I, you know, I don't want to upset you. And my gut reaction to listen to your call is you have been in an open relationship for three and a half years. You just didn't know it. Yeah. You know, my, when you talked about, you know, what you caught him doing before, the sexting, the making dates, yeah, there are people online who are fakes and flakes. That's what people complain about, that there are fakes and flakes on FetLife and uh, OkCupid and Dudes Nude and even AshleyMadison.com. There are people who make plans and never show up Mm -hmm. because they're just looking for dirty sort of talk, sort of like something to fuel their erotic imagination, but they have no intention on going through with it. Right. My my reaction, you know, my gut reaction listening to what you described was he's been going through with it and he yeah. put you in this horrible position where you either have to acquiesce to his demands or be the single parent of an infant. Right. And that's just such a, I'm just of two minds here. Like what a horrible thing to do. That's like practically human being disqualifying violation there. And to, to, to throw that at you when your baby is six weeks old, just appallingly selfish and considerate and manipulative and, and evil. On the other hand, you say you love him. You say you have a great relationship. You say that everything's been really wonderful between you two up until this point. And the only thing I want to say to you that's a little like off the reservation, I think to typical advice would be, okay, all this time you've been with him. Let's assume that he's been cheating on you this entire time. Right. You, you have been in an open relationship. You just didn't know it, which is the open relationships. Most people in open relationships are in. And he was able to love you and take care of you and be there for you. And you, the relationship was great, even though he was fucking other people the whole time. So you mm-hmm. could have a great open relationship with this guy. Clearly he can do it. He can love you and be there for you and be the wonderful, loving, giving person that he is also capable of being. 
and mm-hmm. fuck other people. Cause that's what he's been doing. He's been that person you've been with for the last three and a half years and been fucking other people. And so the question for yeah. you is, can you live with it being an honest open relationship where he sometimes fucks other people Maybe the agreement is you want discretion and don't ask, don't tell. And the consideration shown for you is maintaining the appearance of social monogamy. Like you don't want him fucking friends. Mm-hmm. You don't want him. You don't want to be known to be in an open relationship. That's social monogamy versus sexual monogamy. And sometimes the social monogamy constraint really limits the amount of non-monogamy that can actually practically happen. Because if mm-hmm. you guys are maintaining the appearances of being monogamous – that limits opportunities. He can't just be fucking people left and right. He can't be fucking people in places or at times uh, where you know his coworkers or your larger social circle gets wind of it. It can really limit things. But you know, part of me wants to hope you have like a private family fortune and you can kick him to the curb because what he's done is so fucking unbelievably shitty. And when someone does something that unbelievably shitty. It's hard to stay with that person without expecting more unbelievably shitty blindsiding ultimatums to happen. Right. You know, set the issue of fucking other people aside. He's shown you that he is capable of this kind of manipulativeness and cruelty. Mm-hmm. Is that someone you want to be with for the rest of your life? That's a question that you have to answer. And everybody's shitty and to a certain degree. And you take the bad with the good. But this is some pretty right. severe bad. That you guys, if you're staying together, need to unpack with a couples counselor at great length and not just some fag with a podcast. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone there, too. And I've also gone to the place of if this happened three months into our relationship, I would have walked. I know I would have. And not even thought twice about it. And it just seems like there's so much more at stake. It's breaking up a family. You know, it's like choosing a single mom for my son. That's a big I didn't go, I didn't get pregnant thinking that I sure, you know, I sure mm-hmm. didn't. So, right. Which is why some people, that's what's manipulative and shitty about this, that he wanted to mm-hmm. be with you. And he probably knew at three months that he couldn't be, you know, he couldn't ask for an open relationship and be with you. So he maneuvered you into a corner where the consequences of leaving now are so great and so dire that you're literally, gonna, you're literally thinking twice about it. You're going to think twice about it. Mm-hmm. He has this tremendous leverage over you. Right. You you also have leverage over him. You say he loves this baby and he's crazy about this baby. And being a divorced father typically means seeing a lot less of your child, being a lot less involved day to day, many, many fewer opportunities for those chance sort of grace note interactions with your kid over the course of their life, which tend to happen when you least expect them when just you're with them as you are, mm-hmm. you know, constantly. And those, those beautiful moments happen. And there'll be a whole fucking lot less of those for him if you walk. So it's not as if you don't have leverage. Right. But then that makes the kid the fucking tug of war. It puts the kid in the middle of a tug of war between parents, which isn't a good place for a kid to be. But at least an infant isn't aware of it. Maybe you guys can get it all sorted out before he's conscious of what kind of relationship his parents have. But you have a lot of, uh, there's no, I can't tell you what to do here. You have some thinking to do about the person you know he is fully now, which is capable of being loving and considerate and capable of being shitty and manipulative. Right. And whether the shitty manipulative so far outweighs the good and loving that you can't stay. Yeah. And I would get, get both your asses to a marriage counselor. What else is there? What else hasn't he told you? Is this the only locus of his shitty manipulativeness? Are there other things that have gone on in your relationship, your life where 
he's engaged in this kind of deceit and dishonesty and run out the clock. And he didn't really run out the clock. He just made the stakes of your leaving so great to choose now to do this disclose after the baby, after you're pregnant. Oh. Yeah. What else? Is this the only shoe or is there another shoe that he intends to drop at some point? Because may- maybe if it's the only fucking shoe, you can stay. Maybe you guys can work it out. But you're going to have to really drill down and make sure this is the only fucking shoe. But again, I don't think this has been a monogamous relationship for the last three yeah. years. And I don't think it's going to be one going forward, whatever he agrees to. If you can extract an agreement from him under duress to be monogamous because that's the price he has to pay to see his son, he'll probably cheat on you. Right, right. I thought about that, too. I should say he'll probably continue to cheat on you. I'm so sorry. I hate to be the little devil fag bearer of bad news, anti-Cupid here, but it really is a terrible, terrible situation that you're in, and I ache for you. I just ache for you, and I'd like to slap your husband or your boyfriend or whatever (laughs) the fuck he is. (laughs) That has been uh, the reaction of most of my friends. (laughs) I want to punch him in the fucking face is usually the first reaction. Well, it's an intensely shitty thing to do. And I hope one of the things I would want to see if I was in your shoes and considering staying is him owning that. This was an incredibly shitty thing to do. And I am sorry. And I, whatever his reasoning was, but if he's sitting there saying, yeah, I ran out the clock. So you would not leave me. (laughs) But if, if he was a bumbling fool and backed you into a corner at the same time, he was kind of backing himself into a corner. Maybe it can be forgiven, but Oh man, you guys have work to do. I hear you. Well, thank you for calling. Appreciate it. <laughs> you sound so cheery and upbeat. Thank you for calling. Like I called to tell you that you won the lottery or something. Well, it's not like you're not telling me anything. I haven't just gone over and over and over in my head. And I've just, you know, I've considered the worst. I've considered the best. I, what's the it's, best? it's not what, been good. What, what's the best case scenario for you? Um, I mean, I would love, I would love for my son to have him as a father. I mean, he's going to have him as a father regardless, but I mean, you know, in the home. Yeah, in the home. But it's, it's, tough. But it, it's tough to get by. But yeah. at what price? To you. Right. I'm sorry. My heart goes out to you. I really ache for you, and I wish you the best of luck as you figure out what's, what's right for you. Okay. And your family. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old female living in San Francisco with a boyfriend um, of about three months. He's 24. Um, I'm having some issues as of right now. Um, we've been dating, like I said, about three months, and at first things seemed, you know, really hot and heavy, and you know, we're both really attracted to each other. And we've been on some vacations and trips, and everything's been going along. Um, it seems like his desire for me has kind of fallen a little short um, compared to mine. And we've talked about our uh, our sex drives and, and comparison to each other's and. We just kind of concluded that his is a lot lower than mine, or yeah, lower than mine, and yeah, I guess it's abnormally high sex drive. But this is really frustrating me because he doesn't want to make out, he doesn't like it, um, he doesn't like to have sex too often. I want to give him a blowjob, and he doesn't even want that. So is this a deal breaker? And if it is, then you know, how can I can I do something um, to? Lower your sex drive? And if it isn't a deal, deal breaker, then um, how can we compromise? You're not going to lower your libido. You're going to get rid of this guy. 
it's not working out. Whether he has a low libido or whether he's just three months into this relationship and he's realized that you're not the person he wants to be with, hence the drop-off in his desire to be sexual and be intimate with you, to accept the blowjobs on offer from you, uh, is immaterial. It's not working. It's not working. Let's say, best case scenario, he still wants to be your boyfriend. He still really likes you. Um, and in his low libido way, he is sexually attracted to you. This disconnect, this sexual incompatibility, this conflict will only get worse. Prudy and I talked about this when she was on the show. Everybody I know who writes uh, relationship columns talks about this and acknowledges this. Half our male some days are people in long-term relationships with this problem. One person has a low libido, one person has a high libido, and it's a constant source of conflict and drama and misery for both partners. The low libido one feels under pressure to be more sexual than they want to be. They feel like a constant disappointment. The higher libido one feels constantly rejected and is miserable and unhappy, and eventually somebody cheats and the whole thing explodes. And then the high libido partner gets all the blame, even though they were sucking it up for a long time and feeling so rejected and sexually dehumanized in a way or stigmatized, it's not a recipe for long-term success. So if where you are right now at three fucking months is he doesn't want to fuck you, that is not something that gets better. And that is not something you go out and find a pill for that lowers your libido. That is something that you go out and find a different boyfriend about. So it's over. End it. Hi, Dan. I'm an American living in the middle of nowhere in the Carpathian Mountains in Slovakia, bordering Poland. We have 327 people here in the village and about 2,000 sheep. A couple of cows, a couple of horses, and lots of chickens, I guess. Um, I've lived most of my life in, in cities, and I now find myself in this little tiny village and I really love it here. It's really beautiful. But the fact is I'm lonely here. I lived in Krakow for a couple of years and I have friends there and I visit them occasionally and they occasionally come and visit me. But I just miss speaking English and being with with kind of like normal educated people. No offense to the people who live here. I finally started looking, and really because of your website, I started looking at different dating sites. And I found one that was international and uh, and ended up meeting somebody from uh, Westchester, PA. Go figure. Anyway, apparently that didn't work out. And I'm still looking for somebody and um, I can't really find any websites and I'm, I'm just kind of at a logger jam here. I, I don't know where else to look and I'm really computer savvy, but I just can't find the correct website where I could find somebody within the region that I could communicate with. So anyway, I was hoping that maybe you might be able to find somebody or find some site that could help me. So you're the only expat in the village. I'm not sure I can help you. I am not as computer savvy as a lot of people assume based on the Santorum campaign and the, it gets better thing. I'm really kind of an idiot when it comes to online shit. Uh, I just found out about the whole Tumblr porn connection. 
So I'm not, I'm not, I can't pull a Slovakian dating site out of my ass. Uh, and I would just start Googling Slovakian expat dating sites and probably not come up with much. Slovakia is a tiny fucking little country and you chose to go live in a tiny little village in a tiny little country. You say that this person or this woman or whatever from West Chester, PA that you found, it didn't work out. Well, you know what else didn't work out? Living in a village with 200 people. Because you can't find anybody, because you're lonely, because there isn't a large expat community there. Get your ass back to Krakow, which when you first said, I thought you said crack house. I was very confused. Get your ass back to Krakow. Get your ass to a bigger city with, I don't know, more people than sheep and a few more expats. And you may have some options. But where you are right now, where you've chosen to be right now, unless you're in the army and they're stationing people against their will in 200-person villages in Slovakia, where you've chosen to live isn't going to make you happy. That's what you've discovered in the last few months. This place, because it is isolating, is making you unhappy. So you need to choose to move your ass to a different place, a bigger place, a bigger city with more people than sheep. Hey, Dan. I am a straight male from Canada. You know, I wanted to talk about the, uh, the whole the condom breaking thing, or the, the, that sex feels the same with a condom as without. Dude, you're wrong on this one, Dan. A condom broke during sex just now, and I felt it. I noticed it. And let me tell you, it felt better. However, I agree with you. Everybody, wear condoms. You must wear condoms. But Dan, dude, those nerves, they tingle. They tingle a bit more, my friend. I'm amazed by the pushback I get on this, uh, but I'm going to stand my ground. Yes, there is a difference uh, in feeling and sensation when you wear a condom. But again, that difference is most easily perceived. It's most apparent uh, at the beginning, when you first begin fucking, before the condom has entirely warmed up, before your dick is slamming around inside it and inside the person that you're in. And... I've cited as proof for this, proof enough for me, that most people, not all people, but most people don't notice when the condom breaks, that there isn't so perceptible a difference in sensation that most people fucking because they put the condom on incorrectly or the condom's too small or the condom is old or damaged and somehow, most people, when they're fucking and a condom breaks, which does happen, don't realize it. They don't shoot across the room because the sudden surge of sensation to their dick it's like getting electrocuted. They don't notice until they're done, which means one of two things. People, when the condom break, uh, think, awesome, the condom broke, and lie. And then when they pull out and say, oh, my God, the condom broke, I didn't realize it, they're bullshitting the person in whom they just blew a load. Or people, don't, I, I prefer to think people are better than that. People legitimately, honestly, actually don't notice such a great difference that they just don't realize that the condom broke. Maybe your dick is more sensitive than other dicks. I've always said, in most cases, maybe you are the exception that proves the rule, since you notice when the condom breaks. Most men don't. That loss of sensation most men complain about, it is at the beginning, at the start. Once you get going, you're not going to notice it. And my advice always to guys who have to use condoms to avoid pregnancy, uh, to protect themselves um, from sexually transmitted infections, uh, from HIV, is to masturbate with condoms. Spare your T-shirt. Spare your sock. Spare your dick, the ignominy of having little bits of Kleenex stuck to the head when you wake up in the morning. And put a condom on and jerk off with a condom on. 
and you will get used to it. Your dick will adapt. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 405, specifically the woman who just couldn't fathom why any man would ever want to be a gynecologist. A lot of the times with gynecology and obstetrics, you're going to be handling pretty happy life events. You're going to be helping women figure out if they can get pregnant. You're going to be helping pregnant ladies. You're going to be delivering babies. You're going to be seeing a lot of patients in a time in their lives when they're starting families and when things are joyous. You don't go through seven or eight years of medical school and tens of thousands of dollars of tuition just to get kinks and kicks out of uh, your daily job. You do it because it pays well. And that's exactly the motivation, money. Hello, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 405 and the woman who is asking about the intentions or motivations of male gynecologists. And as a gay man who dated a gynecologist once, first of all, the being part of the childbirthing process has been incredibly rewarding and exciting, and, and that's the main motivator that got into it. But secondly, I would like her to consider that not everyone comes into the gynecologist with a shiny, attractive pussy. A lot of these women are coming in with banged up, mangled, raunchy pussy. And that's what this man has to stare at all day. Hey, Dan. I'm a nurse, and people in the medical profession have to be able to compartmentalize to be able to do their jobs. It's the same reason we're able to care for a dying patient in their family and then walk out of the room and go into another patient with a totally strong face on, or the same reason people who work in the emergency room are able to care for a traumatic amputation and keep their brains together to stay sane. So I would say it's the same thing for male gynecologists. They're able to compartmentalize and do their job and recognize that their personal life is separate from their professional life. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The deadline for submissions to Hump, the amateur porn festival, is coming up. Go to humptour.com for information about submitting if you'd like to make a film for next year's Hump Festival here in Seattle and Portland or uh, next year's Hump Tour. Humptour.com. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy Zentai suit-wearing at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.